Now, if you cast your mind back a few months to the summer when we were last in James, you may remember that we noted how James' letter has a focus on exhorting believers to act in a way that is consistent with their faith. James wanted his readers to know that it is expected that those who claim to be in Christ, that they would naturally show forth evidence of this faith by the good things that they do. And so this desire for the practical righteousness of the saints is the current beneath the flow of James' letter. So just to refresh your memory, James began this letter by addressing the way that believers were to respond to the trials that we face. We saw that we are to respond to them with joy rather than with grumbling and frustration. And this is because the hardships that we face refine us more and more into the image of Christ. And then from verse 19 of chapter 1, James deals with our conduct by addressing our very attitude when it comes to hearing the word of God. He exhorts us to be the sort of people who accept or receive the word gladly instead of stubbornly fighting against it. Because only when we are the kind of people who are teachable and meek will we be able to receive the word of truth and be more obedient to it. And so after priming us to receive the word and hear its instruction gladly, we were then exhorted to do the word. As I said, a central theme in James' letter is this, is that if we really are genuine believers, we will display the evidence of our salvation by the good works that we do. And so James gives us practical examples. From verse 26, he reminds us to control the things that we say. Because if we do not, as a matter of practice, control our speech, we show that we do not have genuine faith and, in fact, are still dead in our sins. He says, if anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And then on the other hand, one who does have genuine faith, as opposed to worthless faith, will do things like caring for the poor and the helpless. And such a person is careful about his or her own personal holiness and not loving the things of the world. And so all these things brought us down to the end of chapter 1. So now as we begin chapter 2, we will see that James has not at all changed his topic. He is still hammering home the importance of right Christian behavior as evidence of genuine faith. And he is still doing so through practical examples. Thus, he writes to warn his readers that the showing of partiality in favor of the rich is not in keeping with the commandments of Jesus Christ. So we can view the text before us as having a dual purpose. For one, we are exhorted away from partiality, which is an issue in and of itself. And two, we are warned that those who practice uh, the showing of partiality do not show evidence of genuine faith in Christ. So to be clear, the first issue is the sin of showing partiality, and the second has to do with the implications of our conduct and what that conduct says about our profession of faith. So as we examine what James has to say about showing partiality, we should see why the issue is serious enough to be an indicator of our spiritual state. Now just to prepare you for what to expect, we won't get to everything that James has to say about this issue tonight. We're going to actually finish that next Sunday night when we look at verses 8 to 13. So, 
James sets the scene for us in verse 1. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Now this is a scenario that does not need much by way of explanation. Sometimes the events and situations written in scripture often have like certain historical and cultural context that may be completely foreign to us. But that isn't the case here. All of us can easily understand the scene being set before us. Because it's a situation that can easily play itself out in our day and age, unfortunately. I want you to picture it. You have an assembly, be it a church or a town hall meeting or something else that's open to the public. And the wealthy people show up in their Mercedes and their BMWs and they're wearing designer clothes and fancy watches and jewelry. And at the same time, the poorest people show up. And they're in torn and grimy clothes. Maybe some of them are homeless. Maybe they have no shoes on. But the poor people are made to stand at the back if they even get let inside at all. While the rich, they get the front row seats and they have easy access to the panel or maybe easy access to the elders of the church, what have you. This isn't something that's hard to imagine happening. And so James admonishes his audience not to be the kind of people who would do such things or allow such things to take place. And this is not a minor issue. James says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, it is not in keeping with your profession of faith to show partiality to the rich at the expense of the poor. If you engage in this sin as a matter of practice, your very faith would stand in doubt. So, make no mistake, this is a big deal. Now before we move any further into this topic, we need to take some time to make some clarifications and define our terms. Tonight you will hear me talk about the rich and the poor. I'm going to talk about that a lot. And at many times it will sound as if the poor are the good guys while the rich are the bad guys. Well I want us all to be clear that what makes a person either good or bad in the eyes of God is the work of Jesus Christ applied to that person if and when they claim him as Lord and Savior by faith. So being rich doesn't automatically make you an evil oppressor, nor does being poor automatically make you an innocent saint. Yet, we could misunderstand and think that James means to present all the rich as being evil and all the poor as being good. We would be wrong to understand what he is saying in that way. There are rich believers who do good with the money that God has granted to them. And there are poor unbelievers who abuse, and lie, steal, and even mock God. So keep that in mind as we consider the text before us tonight. Because, as we should all know, being poor is not what grants one entry into the kingdom of God. Rather, it is faith in Jesus Christ. And being rich does not automatically keep one out of the kingdom. Yes, our Lord said it was impossible with man. But then he said it was possible with God. 
So of course, there is gospel hope for rich and poor alike. So keep that in mind. Another clarification regards what actually constitutes the showing of partiality. Well, partiality is when you unjustly favor one person over another based on that person's outer appearance or their greater status or wealth or anything else that is superficial. In our modern vernacular, we call this discrimination, though there is a slight nuance to how those two words are used. We show partiality in favor of someone while we discriminate against someone. You understand? When we talk about showing partiality, the person being treated well is the subject. Thus, we talk about showing partiality to the rich. But when we talk about discrimination, the person being treated badly is the subject. Thus, we talk about discrimination against the poor. Now, that is a minor point. But the major point that I want us to be clear on is that when we talk about showing partiality and discrimination, there must have been an injustice that has occurred in order to make the usage of these words appropriate. There must have been an injustice that has occurred in order to make the usage of these words appropriate. And this is extremely important for us to understand because it can become very easy for us to call anything and everything partiality and discrimination. And also let me add that in our zeal to not show partiality and discrimination, we need to be careful to examine each scenario in order to make sure that an injustice has actually occurred. Rather than making blanket statements that yes, this person or that person was unfairly treated. Not every instance of a black person losing a job opportunity to a white person is an example of racist partiality and discrimination. And not every instance of a man getting a promotion instead of a woman is an example of sexist partiality and discrimination. Let me explain. If a black man and a white man apply for a job and the boss says, I'm not hiring the black guy because I don't like black people. That is clearly discrimination. An injustice has been done to the black man because he was disregarded on the basis of his outward appearance. But if the boss says, I'm not hiring him because he's not qualified, then that's different. It's not unjust to make distinctions between applicants on the basis of their fitness for the job. As a matter of fact, a good boss will make sure he gets the best people for the job based on their education and experience and so on. So you see my point. An injustice must have taken place for an accusation of showing partiality or discrimination to be leveled. And one more very important thing. What is an injustice? Or to put it another way, who decides what is unjust? For example, our church here, following the commands of scripture, does not allow women to hold positions of authority in the church. But there are those who would consider such a rule to be unjust because it makes distinctions based on sex. Now suppose the government made it illegal for churches to prohibit women becoming pastors. Would our church then be guilty of showing partiality and discrimination when we seek to obey the Bible? Of course not. We must obey God rather than men. So believers must conform their morality to the commands of Scripture rather than to the commands of the world. Now, we can say much more about the different kinds of discrimination that exist and the 
many different people, sorry, and the many different ways that people can show partiality and discrimination and all the different groups who can be favored to the detriment of other groups. But tonight, our focus will mostly be on the rich and the poor since that is the context that James sets before us. But for sure, what we learn tonight should inform how we see the issue of showing partiality and discrimination in other contexts. So with that said, let's look at what makes the showing of partiality to the rich so sinful in the sight of God. James says from verse 3, If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, you sit here in a good place, while you sit in the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Now James is addressing the issue of discrimination broadly. That is to say that James means to prohibit Christians from discriminating against anyone, or from showing partiality towards anyone. It's not as if we Christians are commanded to turn from discriminating against other Christians, but we're free to do it to non-Christians. That's not what's going on here. And we know this because later on in verse 8, James talks about fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And who is my neighbor? That's the question. Other Christians? Yes. But also everyone else. In the same way that Jesus told the Jews of his day that they were also to treat Gentiles as their neighbor and love them and not just other Jews, we believers are to love all people and act fairly and righteously toward them, whether they're saved or not. But with that said though, while discrimination against those outside the church is certainly sinful, discrimination against those within the church is all the more sinful. Let me show you why this is the case. If we believers despise other believers who are poor and instead only show favor to the rich believers, we are in effect saying that not all Christians are equal. Now we should hear this and immediately know why it is sinful. Immediately the words of Paul to the Galatians should be ringing in our ears. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Indeed, when it comes to our status in the eyes of God, each one of us is equal in his sight. For each one of us was dead in our trespasses and sins, and without hope of remedying our situation on our own. It took the spilled blood of our perfect Savior Jesus Christ to redeem us. He did the work that we could not do, and now it is only through faith in him that we have access to salvation. And this is so that no man is able to boast before God. So that no man is able to stand before God and say, Look how righteous I am, because I was able to save myself. No, it is all God's work. There is nothing a man can do in himself and of himself to commend himself to God. All must depend upon the work of Jesus done on their behalf. Therefore, all believers stand on equal footing before God. For all were dead, and now all who have come to life have done so by the same way, by the same road, through the same door, the man Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, riches neither raise one's status in his sight, nor does a lack of riches lower one's status in his sight. Listen further to what Paul says to the Ephesians. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That scripture written to the Ephesians is about the amazing reality that Gentiles or non-Jews can now, through the sacrifice of Christ, be co-inheritors and joint heirs of all the promises that God made to the Jews. John MacArthur notes that, and I quote, The dividing wall of hostility alludes to a wall in the temple that partitioned off the court of the Gentiles from the areas only accessible to Jews. Paul referred to that wall as symbolic of the social, religious, and spiritual separation that kept Jews and Gentiles apart. End quote. So the dividing wall of the old covenant that separated Jews from Gentiles is now gone, having been replaced by the new covenant, in which all who call upon the name of Christ by faith are brought together into one body, each precious believer having the same value. Thus, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. This is what Christ has accomplished by his death and resurrection. This is why he came to earth. This is why he bore with 33 years of hardship, living among sinful people and placing himself in a position to be affected by the curse when he didn't deserve it. It's why he went from town to town preaching the good news being homeless and having nowhere to lay his head. This is why he would come to be known as a man of sorrows. Why he suffered at the hands of the very people that he came to save. Why he allowed himself to be betrayed into the hands of wicked men who would slander him and mock him and beat him. And finally, it's why he was nailed to that torturous wooden cross and killed. All of this to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to each other, into one body, united in love and faith to each other and to Christ Jesus, who is our head. So how ridiculous does it sound then that we believers would again try to throw back up dividing walls to make distinctions among ourselves on the basis of money, on the basis of who has more stuff, Listen, showing partiality within the church makes a mockery of all that Christ has accomplished. It spits in the face of he who bore the wrath of God to bring all of his beloved into one body. In light of this, the idea that we would despise some and love others on the basis of money is disgusting. The thought that we would disregard any for whom Christ died, for any reason, not just money, is appalling and it stands opposed to the work of Christ. May it never be said that this sin is found among us. James goes on to say that when we show partiality to the rich and make distinctions among ourselves, we 
Become judges with evil thoughts. That's verse 4. Or as the NASB puts it, judges with evil motives or vicious intentions. And we can imagine what these evil motives could be. Perhaps we may think that if we let the rich come into our assemblies and by the sole virtue of their wealth, let them sit in the honored places, perhaps they will be inclined to put something substantial into the offering plate. Or perhaps they will become our friends and offer us some kind of opportunity and using their power and connections, they'll get us ahead. Put bluntly, maybe those who favor the rich are in it for themselves, selfishly seeking what the rich can give them. Like dogs following close behind the person who has food, thinking that they can get some of the food too. These dogs wouldn't hesitate to maul the poor man who has nothing. James even points out the foolishness of this opportunistic way of thinking. He says in the latter part of verse 6 and then verse 7, Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So here you are, drooling and fawning over the rich. They don't care nothing about you. Now again, to be clear, James is not condemning all the rich. As noted elsewhere in scripture, there are rich Christians and they are beloved by God. So again, we must keep in mind that as James talks about the rich, he isn't making a blanket statement about all the rich, as if being wealthy automatically makes you an evil oppressor. That's no more true than the idea that being poor makes you righteous and innocent. So just note that the rich around those to whom James wrote clearly had a reputation for being cruel, lying thieves who cursed and mocked Jesus. They were cruel because they oppressed people. And they were lying thieves because, as James says, they would wrongfully drag you into court on false charges where, likely in league with corrupt judges, they would cheat you on what was rightfully yours. And Jesus? These evil people would have had no time for what they surely considered to be nonsense. A peasant Jew who went around doing magic tricks and ended up getting himself killed? No time for that. No doubt they mocked the Lord just as many mock the Lord today. We know the kinds of blasphemous things that people say. We hear it all the time. These wicked men and women were the sort of unbelieving rich who would rather put their trust in their riches and their possessions rather than placing their faith, faith in Christ. And they would likely mock and deride anyone who did put their faith in Christ. So James is like, why would you prefer these people? You are sinning by showing favoritism toward these people, and these are the people that abuse you. It doesn't make any sense. James is being very practical and down to earth here. Like when Paul says to the Romans that perhaps someone would die for a righteous man, but certainly not for a wicked man. James is using similar reasoning here. Perhaps a person would commit a crime on behalf of someone who loved them. But who would get themselves in trouble and incur wrath on behalf of someone who hated them? It doesn't make any sense. So that's just one part of James' reasoning as to why we ought not to show partiality to the rich. You see the other part in verses 5 and 6. He says, Listen, my beloved brothers, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. You see, friends, when we show partiality to the rich and despise the poor, we are found again to be setting ourselves against God himself who has chosen the poor. Indeed, God's concern for the poor is all over scripture. Let me just share with you a few examples. Proverbs 14.31 Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Deuteronomy 15.11 For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Psalm 140 and verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Matthew 5, 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 1 John 3, 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. I could literally go on and on and on, but the point has been made. Anyone familiar with scripture knows that God's eye is on the poor. But now, if you think about that, a dilemma seems to arise. Does God's care and concern for the poor constitute partiality from God in favor of the poor? That would be a problem because it's not as if James is telling us to stop showing partiality to the rich, but instead to start showing partiality to the poor. I made the point earlier that we have all been made equal in Christ, both rich and poor. And even when speaking about the poor and the rich who are unbelievers, they are still our neighbors in the biblical sense. So under no circumstances are we to replace favoritism for the rich with favoritism toward the poor. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. Listen, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So despite how noble it may seem to some, perverting justice in favor of the poor is also evil. Yes, Robin Hood was a bad guy. We, we can't say that God would do such a thing. Furthermore, Scripture says of God that He shows no partiality. That's Romans 2 and verse 11. And 1 Peter 1.17 says that God judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So how do we explain what appears to be the showing of favoritism to the poor by God? Why has God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Why are the pages of scripture filled with concern and care for the poor? Is it that the poor are God's favorite kind of people? Again, I say no. As the King James Version would say, there is no respect of persons with God. Well, there are two answers that I can offer for this seeming problem. What appears to be favoritism of the poor by God is not that at all. 
We would be wrong if we looked at the many scriptures that speak of God's concern for the poor and conclude that God is showing partiality to them. Rather, the truth is that God cares for all mankind. Just as we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love even our enemies, God loves all mankind in the sense that God cares for all mankind. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 45, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So God does good to all mankind, and clearly, Scripture shows God's regard for the poor. And is it that the rich get left out when it comes to God's uh, regard and care? No. They're rich. God has blessed them with riches. God has indeed regarded them, seen in the very fact that they have possessions and are wealthy. Remember, a man can have nothing unless it is granted to him by God. But the problem is that because of the power that comes with wealth and the sin that pervades the human heart, it is the rich who are often in the position to abuse the poor. Now a righteous rich man would be selfless and his heart would be inclined to use his riches to care for the needy. But because of mankind's corrupt nature, selfishness and cruelty are more prevalent than generosity and kindness. And so God must speak up for the poor because of the natural human tendency to use the power afforded by wealth to abuse the poor. Thus we get the many scriptures where mankind is reminded to regard the poor. And the poor who are accustomed to being disregarded and constantly lacking in what they need are comforted by God with promises of salvation being made available to them. Some poor may believe, oh God would only care about the rich and powerful those who have, those who are somebody. But God says to them, no, salvation is available to you also. So we see that God has regard for all mankind. He just chooses to show his regard in different ways. So that was the first answer. The second answer is that God has a specific purpose for his choosing of the poor to be the ones who inherit the kingdom. To understand this, we first need to understand the reason for the existence of all creation. We know that all things exist for what? For the glory of God. Thus, the heavens and the earth are like a grand stage upon which the greatest story ever told is being played out. It's the story of how one man and his wife were placed in a beautiful garden. Stop me if you've heard this one before. <laughs> They were placed in a beautiful garden where they could live forever in joy and fellowship with God. But they rebelled against him and brought a curse upon themselves and upon all their offspring and even the earth itself. But God, being rich in mercy, promised that he would send a rescuer. And so for the next several thousand years, God, on this grand stage called earth, would display his patience toward mankind when they sinned. And he would display his wrath and justice too. And he would display his faithfulness in not casting off the children of Abraham when they sinned. Because he had made promises to them. And then eventually the Savior was born. 
Jesus Christ. And here we see that the author of this grand story actually wrote himself into the plot as one of the lowly characters. Think about that. He wrote himself into his own story as a lowly character born in a manger. And he experienced firsthand the struggles of the people. This Jesus, the Son of God and God come in the flesh. And he sacrificed himself to pay for the crimes of the people. No greater act of love has ever been shown or will ever be shown than this. And this Jesus, after dying, rose to life again and then departed into heaven to prepare a place for his people. And he is coming again. Amen? Amen. To be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey his gospel. Jesus Christ will return to reign on the earth. When all is said and done, all of history will have been a grand display of the nature of God. And all of it will bring him glory. We are all here as both characters in this grand story and witnesses to it. And everything in our lives has been written to bring glory and honor and praise and adoration upon Jesus Christ and God the Father, the Holy Spirit. So what's my point in all this? My point is that God's treatment of the poor is no different. Those who are poor and believe in Christ Jesus exist to bring glory to Him by way of their poverty. God has made the believing poor for this reason. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. For consider your calling, my brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, the reason why God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and to be inheritors of the kingdom is because through the poor, who are weak and lowly, God can display his power for all to see. He can display his ability to take those who have been discarded and abused and turn them into high priests and kings. He can display his love for all to see in taking those who have been despised and granting to them the high honor of being called sons of God. And through the poor, God can display his wrath and anger upon the unbelieving rich. He can display his wrath and anger on those who boast pridefully before him and slander his name because their heads have grown too big in light of their many possessions. They have grown haughty in heart and have exalted themselves. To them, the Lord says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Thus God has rejected the unbelieving rich and has delivered the kingdom to those who are lowly and believe. So all of that to say, God is not showing favoritism to the poor. All mankind has been created for God's purposes in the display of his glory. The poor have their part to play and the rich also have their part to play. And I might add, believers have their part to play and the unbelievers have their part to play. So if that potential misconception cleared up, 
we should be able to cling tightly to this comforting truth without reservation. God has indeed chosen the poor to be rich in faith and inheritors of the kingdom. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Am I, am I considered rich? Am I considered poor? Like, what's going on here? But we don't need to occupy ourselves trying to figure out whether we could be considered rich or poor. That's not really what's important. What we must do, however, is recognize that regardless of our material wealth or lack thereof, each and every one of us is poor in spirit. Each and every one of us, because of sin, are in ourselves spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing that we can offer God by way of righteousness. But praise be to God in His mercy that those who admit their spiritual poverty and run to Christ with open and empty hands will be gifted with the kind of wealth that does not fade away. The kind of wealth that can't be destroyed, as our Lord said, by moths and vermin. The kind of wealth, wealth that thieves cannot break in and steal. Those who admit their spiritual destitution and place their faith in Jesus Christ will receive eternal life and will inherit the kingdom of God. They'll inherit the earth. For blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So brethren, let it not be said that we would despise the poor. Let it not be said that we would show partiality to the rich. Let us instead judge righteously. Let us treat people fairly, not judging anyone by outward appearance. May we love each other and act humbly before our fellow man, before our Lord God.